Hello everyone, my name is Mike Estefan and I thank you for joining me today on this episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today is going to be another deep dive, this time on the topic of trauma. This episode is sponsored by Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Pearson Rabbits is an insurance agency that specializes in securing disability and life insurance policies for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Zach and I both personally use Pearson Rabbits for our insurance needs and would not be recommending their services if we did not think they were anything but excellent. Even if you are not currently interested in their services, they have a really interesting blog on their website where they post articles directly related to disability and life insurance for physicians. I recently discovered this blog and have learned so much from just reading their posts. Did you know that self-prescribing medications can make obtaining a disability insurance policy much more difficult to obtain? I sure didn't. Check out this blog and the rest of what they have to offer at www.pearsonravits.com. Now, back to our episode. Let's start by talking about Advanced Traumatic Life Support, or ATLS for short. ATLS is kind of like ACLS, but for trauma. I believe most, if not all, trauma centers in the United States require their ED providers to be ATLS certified. It is a widely used algorithmic approach to the resuscitation of trauma patients. Every trauma resuscitation begins with what we call the primary survey. And after the primary survey is complete, we move on to the secondary survey. Sometime after the secondary survey is complete, a tertiary survey takes place. Let's work through a hypothetical scenario. Over the base command radio, you learn that EMS has activated a trauma alert for a severe motor vehicle collision with an ETA of two minutes. The ED and the trauma team meet in the trauma bay to await the arrival of the patient. The room is dead silent when EMS enters so that they can give report to the teams about what happened while transferring the patient off the gurney onto the bed. It is at this point where the primary survey begins. The primary survey consists of A, B, C, D, E. A is for airway, B is for breathing, C is for circulation, D is for disability, and E is for exposure. The purpose of the primary survey is to rapidly identify and correct impending life threats to the patient. So let's start with A for airway. You can start by simply asking the patient for their name. If they can speak to you without significant difficulty, then their airway is most likely intact. You may have to suction secretions or blood out of the airway, or use airway adjuncts like a nasal trumpet or an oral airway. Or you might have to even intubate the patient, depending on their mental status, the trauma they sustained, and the anticipated clinical course for the patient. The anticipated course is very important, as you may end up having to prophylactically intubate somebody who's currently protecting their airway, such as in a smoke inhalation injury. Next, B is for breathing. First, you auscultate to ensure the patient has bilateral, symmetric breath sounds. If they have severely diminished or absent breath sounds on one side, this is when you would stop to immediately needle compress and place a chest tube for a presumed hemo or pneumothorax. During the step, you also want to check their oxygen saturation and provide supplemental oxygen if necessary. Next, C is for circulation. This is where you essentially assess the perfusion status of the patient. Examine all extremities to see if they are warm with strong symmetric pulses. You are also looking for active hemorrhage. If there is hemorrhage, it is now that you would try to control it either with a tourniquet or direct pressure depending on the location of the wound. 
assess the rest of their vital signs, mainly their blood pressure and their heart rate. At this time, your team will also be obtaining IV access, usually with two large bore IVs, and drawing a set of labs, and starting the resuscitation either with normal saline or trauma-released O-negative blood. Next, D is for disability. Here, we are assessing neurologic function. I usually start by assessing the patient's GCS and then moving on to a pupillary exam to look for things like asymmetry or non-responsiveness. After that, I do a gross motor and sensory exam with all four extremities. We usually finish the disability step by log rolling the patient to assess their spine. When you do this, you are looking for midline spinal tenderness as well as obvious spinal step-offs or deformities. Don't forget to stick your fingers under the cervical collar to assess for C-spine tenderness. In most cases, we will also perform a rectal exam to assess for rectal tone. Lastly, we move on to E for exposure. It is exactly what it sounds like. You are exposing the patient. Cut off all clothes while keeping the patient as warm as possible. Make sure the perineum, the axilla, and all skin folds are examined briefly to ensure no penetrating trauma is missed. Bullet holes are really small and can be easily missed in these locations if not briefly examined immediately. And that's the primary survey. A, B, C, D, E. Airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. It's really as easy as that. The secondary survey is much less structured than the primary survey. The secondary survey is a head-to-toe assessment of everything. You are palpating every single bone in the body and looking for skin injuries such as bruising, abrasions, and lacerations, and burns. You are also obtaining a basic medical history as well as obtaining imaging studies at this time. There are a few specific injuries and signs to look out for when doing the secondary survey, so I am going to walk through what I personally do. I think everyone does their secondary survey a little differently, so you're going to get different answers depending on who you ask of how they perform it. Personally for me, I take the head-to-toe assessment literally and start at the top of their scalp. I start pushing away their hair, looking for hidden lacerations, and palpating the skull bones to look for depressed skull fractures. I look for abnormal bruising patterns, including post-auricular ecchymosis, known as the battle sign, or infraorbital ecchymosis, known as raccoon eyes. These findings would be concerning for a possible basal or skull fracture. I check the ears specifically to look for hemotympanum, which can be seen with skull fractures. I also check the nose specifically to look for a nasal septal hematoma. These have to be drained immediately, as they can quickly cause necrosis and perforation of the nasal septum. Also make sure to palpate the bones of the face, as well as perform an oral examination to look for dental injuries and intraoral lacerations. Next I move up. Next, I move down to the thorax and begin assessing bony tenderness, starting at the clavicles and palpating my way down both upper extremities. I then move to the chest wall, palpating down the sternum and the rib cage, looking for tenderness or obvious deformities. Examine the abdomen, again looking for tenderness or any abnormal bruising, such as a seatbelt sign. I then will move down to the pelvis and rock the pelvis to assess for pelvic stability. If the pelvis is not stable, then it is very important at this time to place a pelvic binder as these patients have a high risk of lethal hemorrhage into their pelvis. Briefly examine the GU area, looking for signs of urethral injury, such as blood in the meatus in men or bleeding at the introitus in women. If there are signs of urethral injury, a retrograde urethrogram should be performed at some point. Lastly, it is important to examine and document burns including size, location, and severity. It is extra important to ensure accuracy when measuring the total body surface area that is involved with burns, as it directly affects 
how much fluid resuscitation will be provided for those patients. Circumferential burns are another important injury pattern to look for, as these patients are at very high risk of compartment syndrome and usually require empiric escharotomies. After the examination portion of the secondary survey is performed, usually we will get some kind of imaging to aid us in diagnosis. Usually we will start with a chest x-ray and a pelvis x-ray, and then move on to a bedside FAST exam. Simultaneously, while these imaging studies are being performed, this is when I will obtain a basic history from the patient. You know, the usual stuff. Medical history, surgical history, social history, allergies, current medications, etc. Finally, after the examine history and basic imaging studies are complete, we will usually bring the patient to the CT scanner as long as they are hemodynamically stable. And I will say, the definition of hemodynamically stable, I think, changes based on your current hospital system. I would be much more willing to take a patient who is very sick to CT if my CT scanner is located inside the trauma bay versus if my CT scanner was located on the fifth floor of the hospital and I have to take an elevator ride upstairs. And with that, the secondary survey is complete. Again, in the secondary survey, you're performing a head-to-toe examination as well as obtaining a basic history as well as imaging studies. Now, this is typically all we do in the ED for trauma patients. However, the trauma team usually will perform a tertiary survey at a later time, usually hours or days later. The tertiary survey is simply the examination portion of the secondary survey repeated a second time. The purpose of the tertiary survey is to ensure that no minor injuries were missed. Imagine how easy it is to miss a small broken finger or a small extremity laceration, let's say if the patient was injured to the point of requiring intubation, bilateral chest tubes, and an extremity tourniquet. That's going to be missed more times than not, and that's why the tertiary survey exists. And that is ATLS in a nutshell. Let's run through it real quick. We start with the primary survey, A, B, C, D, E. A for airway, B for breathing, C for circulation, D for disability, E for exposure. Next, we move on to the secondary survey. This consists of performing a head-to-toe examination, obtaining a bit obtaining a basic medical history, and acquiring relevant imaging studies to aid in diagnosis. At some point, hours or days later, a tertiary survey is performed, but this is not usually done by the ER. And that's ATLS in a nutshell. I will say, out of all the certification courses, such as ACLS, ATLS, NRP, PALS, etc., the Advanced Traumatic Life Support course had the hardest exam by far out of all the other ones. It's worth learning this stuff now because you're going to have to take this exam when you're in residency for those of you who are medical students going to emergency medicine, and most people have to study at least for a couple hours the night before the exam. It's not like ACLS where you can show up without reading a single thing and pass it with flying colors. And that's all I got for you guys today. We love hearing from you, so send us emails. My email is mike, M-I-K-E, at emclerkship.com, and Zach's email Zach, Z-A-C-K, at emclerkship.com. As we've been mentioning on previous episodes, we are looking to expand our team and bring on some new talent. If you're interested at all, send us your CV, send us any lectures, any educational content you've created, anything to show your stuff. Until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.